Well, this past week, we remembered the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in Memphis. I remember reading his autobiography a few years ago, and one story really stood out. I believe it took place around 1955. King had already begun to mobilize peaceful protests, and as a result of that, there were already terrible threats and uh, ugliness expressed towards him and his family. He heard from a reliable source, even that early on, that there was a plan to take his life. He had a brand new little daughter. Um, Every time he saw his father, he had a wave of anxiety come over him because he knew, knowing that every move he made sent his father into deeper and deeper anxiety. One late night in January of that year, King received a very disturbing call warning him not to come to Montgomery. He went back to bed, but he could not sleep. And so he got up around midnight. He made a cup of coffee and just sat alone at the kitchen table wondering what to do. He was at a true crisis moment. And so he bowed his head and he prayed. And recalling the story some years later, King could vividly recall the words of his prayer. He expressed weakness. He was faltering. He was losing his courage. And he told the Lord he was at the very end of his powers. As he prayed... King could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even unto the end of the world. King wrote that he had never experienced an encounter with God like that experience on that night. He said, almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. That was his kitchen table experience, and it changed everything. In our story in the book of Acts, we're getting almost to the second half. The apostle Paul will become the central figure. And in chapter 9, Luke tells the amazing story of his conversion. His kitchen table experience, his crisis moment, happened on the road to Damascus. Back then, a beautiful oasis surrounded by desert. It was a story that so impacted and energized Paul that he would tell it over and over again. He often reflected on its meaning. In short, Paul was turned from a violent persecutor of the church, its worst enemy, to its most passionate advocate. Now, the specifics of the story, the particulars, are not the same as ours. But the principles are. There was something happening to Paul before he came to Christ. There was an actual conversion experience. And then there was a significant change after his life. Now my question for you this morning is, 
Are you aware of your story? Do you know your story? Are you aware of how God has changed you? And can you share that story with genuineness and clarity? This book, Acts, that we're studying, one of the things that it does is that it normalizes. In other words, it makes normal for every believer to communicate their faith to non-Christians. And one of our most underutilized tools is sharing our story. And so this morning, we want to talk about the power of our story. Everybody has a story. So what I'm going to do is, I'm going to walk through Acts chapter 9, and we'll lay a foundation for this, and then I'm going to invite Linworth member uh, Doug Riggle up to share the stage with me. Doug is the author of this book called Your Testimony, the second greatest story ever told. <laughs> I love that subtitle. And Doug has already trained many of you in how to develop, even how to write your story, how to articulate your story. So he'll join me in a little bit. For now, why don't you stand, and I want to read you this story in Acts chapter 9. If you want to follow along on the Pew Bible, it's page 917. I'll read to verse 19. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they, set, they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple at, at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision. And he said, Here I am, Lord. Or the Lord said to him, Ananias. And he said to him, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. In a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, uh, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to me, Go, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, by which you came and sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is God's word. Pray with me. Um, Father in heaven, open up our eyes to understand the meaning of this for our lives. And let us walk out of here this morning uh, different people and prepared to serve you in Christ's name and for the glory of his church. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can take a seat. We um, first met Paul a few weeks ago, and um, we met him when he gave his approval to Stephen's stoning. His next mention is in Acts chapter 8 after a really violent persecution broke out against the church. And look at Acts 8 verse 3. Get a picture here of Saul's, by the way, his pre-conversion name was Saul. So the same person, Saul, Paul. We get a picture here of his mindset, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The words used to describe Paul here liken him to a wild animal. And his activity to uh, like that of an animal mauling its prey. He was filled with rage and hatred against the church. Paul's sense of loyalty to the nation of Israel, his ethnic pride, and his imbalanced reverence for the law produced something prejudiced and ugly. He thought he was serving God. And that was his state of mind. He was the inquisitor, the hunter willing to travel 150 miles, a week's trip to pursue the Christians who had escaped his dragnet around Jerusalem. That was not an easy trip. There were no nightly stays at the Holiday Inn Express. But on this road to Damascus, the risen Christ appears to him and speaks to him. Jesus so closely identifies with his church and his people that he asks Saul, why are you persecuting me? Here's the way John Stott writes about this. He says, he who had expected to enter Damascus in the fullness of his pride and prowess as a self-confident opponent of Christ was actually led into it, humbled and blinded a captive of the very Christ he had opposed. Then God uses this unnamed hero named Ananias to complete the conversion, noting that Paul's filling of the Holy Spirit accompanies his salvation. Now, Paul's change was immediate and dramatic. He begins immediately to begin telling people about Jesus. So, 
That's the story. And the question we're asking this morning is, what can we gain from this story? I think we can learn quite a bit. But one thing I want to focus on this morning, as we have been focusing throughout this series on the Holy Spirit, is how much Paul's story depends on the Spirit. The Spirit's role in our lives. How the Spirit throws a floodlight onto Jesus. We'll see in his story here as well. The Spirit of God draws Paul to himself. That is really quite evident from the story. We don't see Paul as much deciding for Jesus as if Paul woke himself up and made the decision on his own initiative. But rather, we see Jesus intervening and stopping him in his tracks. The conversion seems so sudden to us, but is it? Is it? Is there evidence that the Spirit has already been working in Paul's life, preparing him for this day? I believe that there is evidence of that. But to find it, we have to go to another account of Paul's story. And it's in Acts 26, verse 14. So just turn a few pages to that text. Here, Paul is retelling his story to King Agrippa. King Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great and the ruler of Judea. And here, Paul adds another important statement that Jesus made to him. Let me read this, verse 14. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, now how many of you woke up this morning and used that phrase, kick against the goads? Okay, probably not too many of you. How many of you have heard the phrase like in the last year? <laughs> probably not that many. It's an ancient phrase in some ways. It sounds bizarre and actually sounds painful. And if you were on the receiving end, it was painful. Here's what it means. It was a rural image. It was used both in Latin and Greek literature. It was agricultural. And what farmers would do is they would goad their oxen in the fields. Goads were made typically from slender pieces of timber, blunt on one end and pointed on the other. So if farmers had to urge a stubborn ox to get moving... They would occasionally, they would drive that pointed end into the ox. And the more the ox kicked, guess what happened? Ouch. The more the goad would, would pummel into them, causing greater pain. That's the picture that Paul uses to describe how the Spirit of God is pushing, nudging, Picking at him, making Jesus hard to resist. Paul's conscience was being pierced. 
And despite his very brave exterior, it's very plausible that Paul was experiencing doubt about his actions. Self-doubt about his actions, despite the bravado. There's three scenarios John Stott lists as possibilities of what could have been causing doubt in Paul's life. For example, it's possible, maybe even probable, that Paul either met Jesus or heard him speak. They would have been in and around Jerusalem and around the temple, potentially at same times, similar, similar times. Some believe it was very likely that Paul either met or heard Christ. Without a doubt, Paul had heard of his teachings. Paul had heard of his miracles. And without a doubt, he heard the persistent rumors of Christ's resurrection coming from eyewitnesses. Secondly, another thing that could have caused doubt in Paul's life was the way that Stephen had died. Do you remember that? Remember how he died? With that peaceful look on his face, the expression of forgiveness, the powerful speech before the Sanhedrin. Some believe Paul was actually a member of the Sanhedrin. He could have been uh, in the audience that day when he spoke. Stott says this, he says, there was something unexplainable about these Christians, something supernatural, something which spoke of the divine power of Jesus. And finally, a third source of potential doubt in Paul's life was a moral internal struggle. You know, our greatest doubts are not intellectual. Our greatest doubts stem from a moral source. Paul was a fastidious Jew. He kept all the commands in word and deed, except he could not keep the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is thou shalt not covet. And what that refers to, covetousness, refers to the, uh, the disposition, the orientation of your heart. It's loves, it's motives, it's inner thoughts, it's secret thoughts, it's desires. And there, Paul had no control. There, Paul had no power. This stoic, very self-controlled Jew had no power over this part of his life. And so for whatever the cause can't be certain of what it is. But whatever the cause, Paul was kicking against the spirit. (laughs) He's kicking against the goads. And guess what? The stronger he kicked, the more it hurt. So, I don't believe that Paul's conversion was sudden, despite its appearance. And I'll also say that despite the way it looks, also we should say that his conversion was not forced. Jesus intervenes. Jesus is calling him and drawing him. But notice, he does not crush Paul's will. He reasons with him. He asks him a penetrating question. Why do you persecute me? Why are you resisting me? Christ appeals to Paul's will and to his conscience. He makes clear to Paul, he makes clear to Paul that his ethnic pride, 
His out-of-control rage has left him spiritually blind. Of course, this is symbolized by his temporary physical blindness. So, in sharing this, what I'm hoping is that you can appreciate the work of the Spirit in Paul's salvation story. Paul did not just wake up one day and become self-aware through his own resourcefulness or his own self-honesty. It was a work of the Spirit. Now, if you still need more evidence for this, turn to Galatians chapter 1. Turn to Galatians chapter 1. This is uh, Paul's earliest epistle, so it's likely that it's some 20 or, or so years after his Damascus road experience. And Paul has obviously spent time reflecting on his story. He's had, he's had a lot of time to think about and reflect on his story. And I want to show you what he wrote about his story. Beginning in verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and He who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Do you see Paul's clear reflections on his experience? He realizes it was not because of his own innate goodness that he chose Jesus, but that rather It was the Spirit of God, the grace of God, working on his heart. He had set me apart before I was born. He called me by his grace. He was pleased to reveal his Son to me. I'm wondering if you've reflected on your story like that. On your own experience of conversion. Have you recognized how God had been working in your life since the day you were born? Or have you assumed that it's because, again, of your innate goodness that you woke up one day and decided to follow Jesus? No. No. Uh-uh. That's not how it happened. The Spirit was initiating, working in your life, throwing a floodlight on Jesus, calling you by grace. Again, appealing to your will and conscience and reason to become his follower. He brought parents or he brought people or he brought pain into your life in order to get your attention. You know, when we reflect on our story, which I'm I'm sharing as one of the applications, if you are already a Jesus follower this morning, I'm appealing to you to think about your story and to reflect on your story. And to appreciate what the Spirit was doing in you prior to your conversion. And when we recognize His grace, it ought to fill us with an overwhelming gratitude. Up to this day, you may be giving too much credit to yourself 
for your salvation. You might think, well, I'm just a pretty good person. That's why I chose Jesus. No, that's, 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 not, that's not what the Bible describes. Here's the second thing that I hope you'll do. Is I hope you'll go back to some of the experiences prior to your conversion and see how God was working in your life. Revealing himself to you. Let me give you just one example from my own life and, and then I'll have Doug come up. When I was six years old, so this is ten years before my conversion, I had a collision with my brother and his bicycle. And I came out the loser of that collision. <laughs> and there was an accident. He didn't try it, but his, the handlebars of his bike came across my skull and, when I, and I was in a vulnerable place and literally crushed the skull here on this side of my head. And... Um, I was uh, taken to the doctor and then rushed to emergency surgery that afternoon, just within a few hours of the accident. There just happened to be there a widely known surgeon. We were told that he was the best in the region, and he was available that day and in that hour. He was actually at the hospital for different purposes. He was available that day to do it. The other thing that happened that night was I was in ICU, it was, a, it was a room where there was actually, um, I can remember maybe five or six beds, uh, two rows of five or six beds, all children. And I remember being woken up in the middle of the night, and I looked down on the row that I was in, three or four beds away from me, and I saw the silhouette, just a silhouette, a shadow of two people talking and whispering. And I didn't know what was happening. And when I woke up the next day, I think I asked my parents about it or asked someone about it. And I was told that that little boy to whom the parents were there, that little boy had died in the night. Again, when I reflect on that experience, even at six, what do I see there? I see a sovereign God, a God full of grace, already beginning to work in my life, not only preserving my life, but also showing me how fragile life is and how desperately we need him. You know, for those of you that are Christ followers, I'm going to bet that you have some stories like that, but maybe you've not recognized them. Maybe you've not identified them. Maybe you've not understood how God was working in you actually many, many years before he made his son so clear to you. You know, those stories are a part of the fabric of who you are. They are a part of the story that God wants you to share and communicate with others. So, having said all that and laid a foundation, how about a warm Linworth welcome for a wonderful Linworth member, Doug Riggle. Come on up, Doug. Doug, first things first, you've got a, uh, a really exciting event coming up, an event that actually is tied to your story. So tell us about that event coming up. Sure. So on um, the 29th of April, it's on a Sunday, so if you can make it to first service, you can uh, make it out to our event. We're having our uh, annual 5K walk run. I'm on the walk side of things these days, but uh, it's a great time out at Hilliard-Davidson High School. Um, we work and partner with the Hilliard-Davidson Band 
Uh, part of the proceeds go to help the kids there with new band instruments. Also helps Orphan World Relief, our uh, orphanages around the world that we support, and our programs here in Central Ohio, uh, working with foster care kids. So it's a great time. It's a great time for the whole family. There's a kids run in advance. Um, kids can dress up as their favorite superhero. It's just, it just, it's just a blast. So I just encourage everyone to come. We have the Tia truck going to be out there serving food and a number of different vendors out there and a uh, number of uh, organizations out there to kind of um, make the, the day, uh, the afternoon kind of fun and exciting for everyone involved. So hope you can make it. That's exciting. And the church is a part of sponsoring it. And again, Doug's organization is called Orphan World Relief. And uh, uh, it's a, we are so happy to partner with you, Doug, in Thank that. So. Well, Doug, let's start off. You have some really interesting thoughts on this. In general, why are stories so compelling? So uh, stories are, and this is obviously a big God thing to me, stories are an amazing thing that he has given us um, for each other. And so I've English major back in college, and I did a lot of my favorite uh, subjects were anything before the 12th century. Um, and back in that time, there were a group of um, Anglo-Saxon called the Shopes, and their whole thing was to go around and tell stories. And they developed ways of, and each culture in the, in the world at this time were doing the same thing. They developed ways of telling stories um, that could be repeated over and over again before the written word was. We had these stories, and they've repeated them, and they had great ways of memorizing them so they could be passed from generation to generation so the story stayed intact pretty much. Um, so I love that aspect of it. There's also something, a physiological aspect of things when you tell stories, and it's been great because I get to teach this uh, to the different executives that I work with at the company I, I'm working for right now. Storytelling is a great way, if you want to get someone's attention, tell a story. And so there's two things that happen to uh, the listener when you tell a story. So I'm about to teach you how to manipulate someone, if you didn't know it. So don't, don't, don't take this the bad way, but it's a great way to get people's attention. When you tell a story and you develop conflict in that story, and the story can be just a minute long or two minutes long, that conflict automatically causes your listener's body to produce cortisol, which is the stress hormone. It adds belly fat. So I've been listening to a few stories lately. Um, it also causes the brain to focus, which is really cool. So you tell a story, you build conflict. Now you've got the listener focused on what you're saying. When you resolve that story with a good ending to it, you know, everything works out happily ever after, whatever it happens to be, their body then produces um, dopamine, which is feel-good hormone. It makes your body feel great. So you've done two things. You've got them focused on you, and now they're feeling good and happy about what you're about to say. So it keeps the door open for um, your testimony, keeps the door open for the gospel message. Storytelling, I always encourage people, even if you're giving a presentation at work, start with a story, and that gets people's attention right away. Yeah, that's good. And so there must be something, too, again, the way that God wired our brain oh, certainly. to be a part of, the, part of that process. So, Doug, you were telling me that in terms of your communicating your story about Christ, that this became very clear to you actually on a mission trip. So tell us about that. So this is our very first trip to Italy. Mike and I were uh, mission co-directors back in the day, and we're headed over there. And we, we planned this event at the hotel we were staying at. Uh, Christine um, Kimball was short back then, was going to give a concert, and I was going to get up and share my testimony. And I, I got up and started sharing my testimony. Interestingly enough, 
my interpreter, who became a really wonderful friend of mine, Giuseppe, um, he stopped me while I was telling my story. He's like, I remember that when that happened. I'm like, you're supposed to be interpreting for me in Italian, not talking. <laughs> but it, it worked out well. And it was, it was just a really good way. And it, it really confirmed to me that the stories have international appeal. Stories are there for everyone. And I learned at that point in time that my story needed to be told. And I needed yeah. to tell it multiple different ways. And Mike and I did a great job. And, and Mike and Dale did that today of, you know, here's 100 verses that are going to help you walk through um, the Bible and, and share your testimony with people. But also what's important is your testimony. You need to add that to it. So you need to be good at telling your story. Yeah. And Doug, talk about it's, it's helpful to think about your story so you can communicate it clearly. Talk about that a little bit. Right. So you never know how much time you've got with someone. When you're talking about your testimony, you may be in an elevator ride for three floors or you may be on a road trip somewhere with someone when you've got hours to have a conversation. What I've learned is that my story, when I tell my testimony, and you'll hear a little bit of it later on today, um, I've learned to be able to, to be concise and give it quickly. I've learned to bring it out longer. Um, oddly enough, now this isn't true for everyone's testimony. Mine's a weird one. They actually, Hollywood made a movie about the events surrounding my story. It wasn't my story, but the events surrounding my story. And so I've used that as a springboard to share as well. It was a movie called The Flood, Who Would Save Our Children, um, back in the 90s that they produced. They actually, Hollywood actually made it in Australia, which is kind of strange. But, <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it's just a great way. Um, this, the, the parts of the story that are relevant depend on, on the, that person in that moment yeah. in time. Yeah, and so you talked about being able to adapt your story to really the needs of the listener. So it's not just you sort of giving your story in a monotone way with no awareness of the needs and the questions of the listener, but you being so familiar with your story, what God did, that you're able to um, adapt it to the needs of the moment, the needs of that person. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. Doug, in your workshop, many people say to you, and I'm sure many of you are thinking this right now. My story is not very interesting or compelling. So why would anybody listen to it? What, what do you say to that? So that's a very common question. You may have grown up in the church. Your parents brought you to church every day or every Sunday, uh, maybe Wednesday night prayer meeting. And it just you just evolved into becoming a Christian. Probably a bad choice of words evolved, but you know, you know what I mean. Um, you... you over time, you realize this is, this is right. This is true. Here, two things. Number one, God's going to put people in your life who need to hear that. They may have had the same experience, but they didn't make that pivot point and say, I'm going to follow Christ. They just said, you know what? This isn't for me. And they may need to hear about your specific story. But every day, too, we make decisions to follow Christ. There are always pivot points in, in every day of my life, at least, I'm hopefully not alone in this, that I make decisions that... I'm going to do the right thing and follow Christ. I'm going to do the right thing and follow Christ. Those are just as important along the way as your personal testimony. And being able to share that with others as well is just as important. Yeah. Yeah. You may be, uh, you know, in a work context. And so for someone who's married, you may be in a work context and talking and marriage might come up and you might have a, a, a 30 second opportunity to talk about how God or how Christ has helped you in your married life. And again, that can be just a very uh, cogent thing because that's something that God has done. And of course, we want to share our stories as well. But all those things 
um, you know, just being aware that we can talk about how God's working and uh, in many, many parts of our lives. Doug, let's do a shameless promotion here. Um, we decided this week that it'd be great for you to do your workshop. Can you just talk a little bit about your workshop? Sure. So in the workshop, we're going to do a condensed version of the Bible study that I wrote before. But you're going to come out of that with a good draft, hopefully, of your personal testimony. Yeah, one of the things, whenever I start the, teaching this, I always talk about what a wonderful vision it would be if to walk into a church, any church, and to see a wall lined with individual testimony tracks. You see people's faces that go to that church. You know at that point you're walking into a church of changed lives. That's what it's all about. Jesus Christ stepped into each of these people's lives in a very different and unique way, yet they're all here. They're all here to celebrate and to worship God. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay, so check that out. Um, finally, as a model, to model for you the power of stories, I've asked Doug to share his. So Sure. So, so sharing in a group, obviously, is different than sharing um, individually one-on-one. And one of the things I'll say is I can pull from different aspects of my background, where I was at the time, um, before I accepted Christ. Um, I, I grew up and I went to church sporadically. I can't think of <laughs> Periodically. There we go. I went to church periodically. Yeah. Sporadically. That's the word. Yeah. With uh, neighbors of mine. Um, I remember going to church one time in my grandparents' hometown of Athens and my great-aunt's family in, in Virginia. Um, but that was it. I didn't have any exposure to it. I, what I did have exposure to was a lot of New Age thinking uh, that was in play at the time back in the 70s and 80s. Um, and I also, sort of the aspect of my life I may bring up is growing up, I was adopted. Um, if you didn't know that, so I was adopted as an infant. And didn't know that my adopted father liked me, much less loved me, until way after my college year. So I was dealing with that and some abuse in the past as well. So any of those aspects I can bring up. Um, all this coming forward to, I'd say this probably March of 87 is when the, the real God really started impacting my life. Now, up until that point in college, I had been dating a woman. She, her name was Gail. She was a Southern Baptist uh, later on, I kind of got on her for being very unequally yoked. She had no reason, reason dating me. But regardless, she would share Jesus with me. I would share Shirley MacLaine back at her. Or I would share what I was reading back at her at the time. Shirley MacLaine was big back then. Um, and we go back and forth. Well, I was also at this point, too, a very depressed young man. I never, because of my dad, because of a lot of different factors, abuse I'd had in the past, physical, sexual, I just always depressed, always down. And I woke up one Sunday morning. I had fallen asleep with the TV on. I woke up, and there was a preacher on TV. And he was saying some of the same things that my girlfriend Gail was saying to me about Jesus and Jesus' love for me. And I, I just was so down, and I just, one quick little prayer. God, this is true. Show me. Now, fast forward. Uh, during the spring of that year, I worked as an intern for the American Red Cross in South Texas, and I had, my internship had ended, and I was at work. I worked at Lackland Air Force Base, and I was at work there, and I got a call from the Red Cross in July saying, hey, there's been an accident in um, Comfort, Texas, a little town northwest of uh, San Antonio. Can you come down and take the place? I was immediately liaison as an intern, and they had no one who can go there for that spot. So I said, sure, I'll go down. They're like, pack a bag. You're going to probably stay three days until we can find someone to replace you. 
No problem. So I drove up to Texas, uh, up to Comfort, Texas, and um, to make a very long story short, um, there had been an accident. So a, in the Texas Hill Country, when it rains, the uh, flooding downstream is, is horrible, fast, rapid, and does a lot of damage. A school bus and a van uh, full of a lot of high school kids and of some adults were leaving a, a Christian camp. I found out it was a Christian camp later on. They were all believers. They were leaving that Christian camp to head back home when their van and bus got hit by a wall of water and washed kids and adults into what was a small stream, became a torrential river. And the sound of that river, if you've ever been to Niagara Falls and hear the sound of those falls, that's what that river sounded like to me. And water does, trust me, a lot of damage. When I got there, um, there were kids missing. They were having search parties everywhere. Um, There were kids in a small elementary school. That's where we had a temporary shelter set up. I got there. The kids still had no clothes. The kids got some robes from local neighbors, uh, but the water had ripped the clothes from their bodies. And so they were scared. They were frightened. They don't know what happened to a lot of their friends. Their family had just started showing up. Their family was pretty far north. There was an uh, airline that was flying all the family down from near Dallas, Texas. It was about an eight-hour flight or eight-hour drive. So they were all flying there. And that's what I walked into. And I got there. And there, so there are a lot of different stories I, I could tell about this experience. This was three days of my life. Um, one of the young men I was talking to in the hallway, he was um, explaining to me about how he got saved. You know, I got rescued, not spiritually saved, but rescued. And he said, I you know, got washed downstream. It's like I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't see anything. The, the, I was just being turned over end on end. He's like, I finally grabbed onto a log. And that log was floating, and it's like I could get my nose above water till I could breathe. So after a while, he said, the, wa- the water started calming down. A drink, speaking of water. The water started calming down, and he realized he could put his feet on the shore. Finally, he could actually see what was going on, got his feet on the shore, looked up, and he wasn't holding onto a log. He was holding onto the leg of a deer, and the deer had swum and saved his life. Another young man named John Bankston. He, a uh, football player, he was someone probably I never would have been friends with back in high school. I was, I was well, still I'm a geek. Um, <laughs> but big, strong guy, and uh, he um, rescued the lives of three of his, his uh, fellow students. One guy had broken his leg at the camp, and he carried it on his shoulders, put him ashore, went back towards the bus to rescue one girl in a tree, let go of that tree, went downstream, rescued someone else in a tree. They never found John again. He gave his life rescuing his friends. There's one more uh, lady. I'll tell you the story. So I I was getting ready to leave on the third day. And um, she was sitting out there just reading. I didn't realize she was reading her Bible at the time. She was reading her Bible. And I knew that she had lost both of her sons. They'd already been found. They'd already been declared dead. Um, her only two kids. And I asked her, I said, do you want me to arrange for you to go home and to, you know, fly back to um, your hometown? And she's like, no. She's like, and she's looked at me and she had uh, just a weak smile on her face. She's like, I'm not going to leave until the last child's found. The love that these people had for one another was not from this world. Um, 
I sat across the breakfast table that morning of John Bankston's father, who had not been found, and the bus driver. And the media were there descending like locusts on the situation. And out in the media was being told that it was the bus driver's fault, why these kids were dead. And I watched the bus driver and John's dad just embrace each other and cry and offer forgiveness to each other and love. It's a love I'd never seen before. This is how I, I this is, this is part of my story of how I became a believer. Uh, and it's just an amazing thing that that kind of love to me existed. And it was, it's interesting. So until this first service, after that, I went home, you know, I accepted Christ. I, I was praying all the way home and ended up three months later, moving back to Ohio and hadn't been to a church and friends of mine that I was friends with from high school, she invited, I didn't know she was a believer. She didn't know I was a believer. She invited me to a church. I'm like, yeah, I need to go to church. And the very first teaching I, I heard was they were talking about Genesis. They were talking about Enoch. And Enoch walked for, with God and he was no more because God took him. And all I could think of is John Bankston. And he walked with God. He saved three lives and he was no more. And that's how I became a believer. Please, Doug. Thank you. Thank you. How about a, a round of applause for Doug? <laughs> Uh, Nick, you can, you guys can work your way, work your way up here. Um, wow, what a, what a great story! What a great story! The power of the story. So again, and let me encourage you to think about your story, reflect on it, to see the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, working in your life prior to your conversion. Think about taking the class and learning how to articulate it, to write it, to share it to others. And finally, you know. It's not too much of a stretch to think this morning that there's some of you that are out there that you're actually on the other side of this. You're like Paul was before he um, surrendered his life to Christ. And you find that you're kicking against the goads. You're um, resisting the work of the Spirit in your life. And the more you resist, the more it hurts. And I think we just want to say to you that Christ loves you and he's trying to draw you to himself and show you his love and his grace. And he might be using uh, certain things in your world to try to help you to understand how much he wants to give to you, how much he loves you. And so we would just encourage you this morning as well to make this the day that you surrender to Christ. And uh, this could be your kitchen table day. This could be your Damascus Road day where you give your life um, to Christ. So we're going to um, sing a couple songs here. And as I said, when we think about our stories and think about the grace of God and the sovereignty of God and the fact that it was not our innate goodness. It ought to cause our hearts to overflow with gratitude that he pursued us and that even the faith that we have, he gave us that faith itself is a gift to believe in him. Our hearts ought to be filled with with wonder and awe 
and gratitude at what he did through Christ for us. So let's sing and express that through these stories. Let's give that way. Let's give of our resources joyfully and freely. And if you communicated anything on that connect card, any way that you want us to minister to you or any prayer request that you have, um, you can turn that uh, in as well. Let's, uh, let's sing, give, pray, and respond to God's word together.